Hi, Jim here. Thanks for listening to this past episode of the Ski Podcast. Since releasing this podcast, we have a new supporter of the show. The Ski Podcast is now supported by Switzerland Tourism. They will be helping us explore some of the 355 ski destinations across the country, from famous names of Samaritz, Lax, Davos and Zermatt, to the lesser-known resorts that cover their mountainous land. We will be reporting on them and telling interesting stories about the people who live and work there. In total, there are 7,067 kilometres of slopes to ski and 1,800 lifts to ride and at least 80 of them are funiculars, which is good because I do love a good funicular. Well, there's a lot to do, so while we get on with that, you can get on with listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Thanks, listener, and thanks, Switzerland Tourism. That's good. Hello, you are listening to the Ski Podcast. We are sponsored by the Chill Factory, the North West Pioneer Ski and Snowboard Centre. And if you want to go there, you can get 10% discount on your next slide by using the code SKIPOD10 at the checkout. Uh, I am Jim Duncan. I'm joined by Ian Martin. Hi, Ian. Hi, Jim. How are you going? Very good, thank you. And coming up in today's show, we'll be talking about cows, boots, snow, snow patrol, one by one. Um, chalet regs, telemarking, uh, telemarketing, yeah, it's been a spell check out of there, and rusty rails. Uh, please do get in touch with the show, tweet us at the Ski Podcast, find us on Facebook, email Jim or email Ian at theskipodcast.com or you'll find us on our website, theskipodcast.com. Ian, I, have, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. You know when you get dressed for skiing? I do. And what do you call it? What, what do you put on? Ski gear? Is that what you mean? Yeah, right. You don't call it a ski suit. I just <laughs> a ski suit on. <laughs> well, you might have a onesie. That could be the difference. No, no, no. I've got, I've got a two-piece suit, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't describe each individual item as putting, putting on a ski suit. You know, like putting your wetsuit. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, not, sure I, not sure I agree with you. Yeah. This is a, this is a disagreement we had by email. It's not a ski suit unless it's a one piece. It? Well, it's got to be a one piece to be a ski suit, it's not yeah. a ski outfit. Yeah, exactly. Alright, so from now on, I've got to say I'm putting on my jacket, I'm putting on my ski trousers. Oh, well, yeah, if, if you're talking anyway, you're getting dressed, then yeah, that's <laughs> um, There's been no need for ski suits actually um, over here at the moment. The temperatures are pretty high. Have you yeah. seen that here? Well, I have. I mean, it's the same in the UK. February temperatures have been recorded uh, in the Alps and in the UK. Um, but uh, hopefully that's not going to be for too much longer. Well, it, yeah, the, the snow, I was excited. I prepared my snow blower and everything, but um, it's been downgraded. I was, we were set for 40 to 50 centimetres, and now it's um, The highest temperature I saw actually was 32 degrees. I registered at one um, lift point. And I did wonder if. Um, I mean, that but is, that is horrifying, quite frankly. Uh, I mean, I can see there's some maybe that can be And uh, obviously, I think you know, one thing we're going to discuss is that avalanche in the normal time when you had a lot of snow and then it gets really hot like that. Um, I don't think it helps for a, a stable snowpack. No, not at all. I mean, as I look around when I'm going up the lifts, there is a huge amount of slides, even on, you know, 
areas that are meant to be fairly safe. I'm, I'm sure quite a lot of them have been set off by um, a safety team, but you know, yeah, there is a huge amount of slides going on. Yeah. That piece safety team will obviously be featuring uh, them specifically, they'll actually do that. Well, let's talk about that Crans Montana. Yeah. That was pretty um, insane, wasn't it? Really, the video um, that was being shared shows a man skiing down um, what looks to be a fairly gentle, normal piece. Um, and as he turns around, his head cam catches um, some people being taken on this relatively safe slope by a huge avalanche. It's um, an impressive that was a terrifying piece of footage, uh, really. I think, uh, you know, I will drop it in the, uh, the show notes if you haven't seen it. But to be, you, you could feel, because it's like a, P, a, a GoPro POV and you, you're in the position of that particular skier, you can feel your heartbeat rise as you see that avalanche suddenly appear on your right hand side there, and they suddenly get a heartbeat. Uh, and obviously, you know, tragically, there was one fatality there. Quite unusual that a spontaneous avalanche, set off by any skiers at all, uh, comes down and then actually comes down across uh, the peaks. Uh, some people got nervous. Someone the other day said she would be nervous about going skiing at the moment because that one incident. The other day we had um, a guest who I went out riding with uh, and you know we were just doing some peace cruising because he had his avalanche safety backpack on and all his gear on, you know, smugly, I was like, oh, you're never going to need that. On peace, you mean? Turned out right. Like, yeah. A higher chance than we thought. Well, yeah, and then I have read a couple of articles saying, oh, you know, you should just wear your, uh, your transceiver the whole time. You gotta put it in context. It is very rare, it is very unusual, but it was particularly and there's been all sorts of repercussions about whether or not they who who is to blame, who's to blame, whether or not that slope should have been closed anyway and should have been closed afterwards. So it's um, half term at the moment, as you can hear from my children in the background um, in a professional recording studio. But <coughs> I'm going to say where I am, it doesn't feel like it's been that busy. Um, people have got, I mean, the roads are quite um, crazy in the way that you drive around here. On the slopes, you know, there's small queues, but there's nothing like the insanity of Centre of Merrillville on a half term. Have you noticed anyone saying that it's busy or not? Um, I haven't seen that. I mean, I think from my recollection, uh, I mean, these days, you know, most resorts, the system is so good. You know, these uh, six man detachable chairs back in the day, you know, they were much slower lifts and made with many people up. And so, passing on the mountain, I would imagine surely parking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you can 
but you know, I remember that in most of these resorts, you know, you can park illegally uh, outside of uh, Bastogne Square, and they just put the lights on your car, warning you not to do it again. So they actually give you parking tickets when you do it in Bastogne Square. I once, half term, was in Cork Sandwich. Tell me, stop me if I told you the story. Um, but we. Um, uh, we were, we'd been, had our week, it was the end of the week, we were staying in the centre of Hawks and I thought I'd park the van um, outside at um, uh, 11 o'clock at night so we can easily pack it at 5 o'clock in the morning uh, and just be off before all the traffic. 5 o'clock in the morning, I got down with my bag, the van had disappeared, but in its place was a marker. <laughs> um, it took me five hours to discover where the van was I went to. The municipal, the tourist office, the actual gendarmerie, um, even to the local pound. And do you know what they had done, which at the end of it I felt was a very nice thing to do. Um, they just towed my van up the road and put it in the car park. <laughs> right, okay. And they parked it really well as well. Yeah. Yep, it was perfect parking, just at the end of the time. Yeah. Um, hey, this is a nice link into someone else's oh, yeah. park. Um, it's a pilot in Courcheval. Yes. I, I, I'm guessing a lot of people have seen it already. Surely everyone's seen it. Surely everyone's seen it. It's been shared all over the place, but they're, they're parking. There's a certain amount of shoulder in watching someone you know, landing a pilot playing at the house. But doing it spectacularly unsuccessfully, and I, I'm pretty confident that no one's been injured seriously. So it's not a lot of If they didn't, then we'll agree it correctly. Well, I did double check on <laughs> <laughs> but there were, there were some light injuries, as there would be if you see in the bank and smoke. They drove in the bank and smoke. They just didn't even turn up and find the land. I think it's meant to be a very different care for the land in the pond anyway. Um, I, I'm not a pilot. I've taken off on from that airport and done a parachute job, but I've never landed there. Okay. Well, one could only hope that it was some rough Or a Premiership football town player for a wide team. Yeah, I think they're allowed to be. Are you sad, Ian, about the news that Lindsay Vaughan has retired? I think she's quite sad about it. She was hoping to go on um, for at least another few months to try and get her record of, um, beat the record of 85 um, World Cups. And also, I think she wanted to finish in um, Lake Louise. That was a big thing. Yeah, good, good research. Him. I like it. She wanted to overtake Ingemar Stenmark on a record of World Cup. I remember when we talked to Graham Bell back at the uh, ski show. He said, you know, one of the reasons they planned out uh, to do a show from St Anton this winter is they calculated that that's where Lindsay Bond would uh, break the record. And obviously that hasn't uh, happened at all. And am I sad about it? I mean, no, but I respect her as an amazing athlete. She's done uh, you know, incredibly well. I mean, she is like a cyborg now. Like, uh, one of the quotes I read from her, I've had four surgeries on my knees. I've got no lateral collateral ligament on my left knee. I've got two braces on. There's only so much I can handle. I might have reached my maximum. Like, you think, you and me, and we'd go, like, after four hours of skiing, doing the van show now, we've got to go the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, dedication and doing uh, part a lot of it, and injuries along the way, but I guess then... Um, Downhill racer, but that comes with the territory. 
expensive. Um, and then she's moving on to become a cow farmer, is that right? Well, I don't know if she is going to be a, a cow farmer. We've had a team of, uh, of cow farmers after uh, our interview with the team of the a couple of episodes ago. But I believe that she does have a herd of cows. And it all started because uh, she won a, a race in Balazair. They offered her a cow rather than the Horse riding. Hold on, hold on. Do you want to tell it? <laughs> no, that was it. I won't. I won't. Uh, won't yeah, I got offered a goat in exchange for something else. Um, that is the bar. The bar economy. Um, stop eating. Right. <laughs> um, you want to know what I think about moon boots? I believe. Is that right? I don't know. It's popped up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. Some moon boots were. Good thing to take or not. I wonder what you thought. What do I think? Um, I think um, in the years that I've been skiing and in the mountains, um, they're always in fashion for someone. Um, I quite like the fat man look. You know, the guy who's got the tight jeans, 80s shell suit jacket and purple moon boots. That's a great look. Um, personally, you know, I've worn them. I think they're very comfy. I once found a really furry pair, um, a bit like a Wookiee, um, in a Poobel, and they fitted me perfectly. Uh, and I wore them for a, a month before I realised I just smelled like wet dog. But for me these days, it's sole boots. It's uh, sole boots is my choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that could be the thing. I, I quite like the retro one up here. I think they're just filled with um, just like foam, I think. I can't remember what it is. No, so maybe yeah, wearing them spring spring boot wear, right? But what is the discussion on Twitter? People like them, they don't like them? What's the general thing? Oh, well, someone called Aggie Holland uh, said, uh, I've been talking question. Are moon boots an effective slogan? A good grip, I'll admit, because when I had my um, Wookiee style pair, um, we used to play football quite a lot on a, a piece um, that went um, from the main area of Courchevel uh, down to where the, the board park used to be. There's quite a flat section where you had an accommodation just there, and that's where we played football on that piece. It's quite a bit really rubbish football, but they, they were an exceptional grip. Okay. And well, I like to blame I'll, the I'll fur. Reply to my inability to. I'll reply to Aggie. Yeah, let her know that. A football. You said earlier on in the show, Ian, that we were going to talk to someone about peace stirs. This oh, yeah. peace security yeah. in Portugal. You've got that in Portugal. Have you seen this uh, video? I have watched it. It's, it's really interesting. 
yeah. It's, it's called Beyond the Peak. And uh, it was released something like about a week ago or something like that. And it is about the ski patrol in La Calusa, your local uh, resort. Do you, um, you recognise any of the people in the video? Uh, no, I don't recognise any of them, but I am going to stalk them. Um, maybe I'm going to print off all their photos and try and get them all signed. Scrapbook, my, my own panini scrap. Yeah, right, panini stickers for ski patrollers. It could be a niche market there. Well, I, I was so impressed by the video that I tracked down uh, one of the filmmakers, Bethany from uh, her company, and asked her a little bit more about wooding. What motivated her to, uh, to put the film together? Okay, so uh, I'm delighted to, uh, to be here uh, on the line now with uh, Bethany Mercer. Uh, Bethany is from uh, Global Shots and the reason um, I wanted to get in contact with you is I watched your video uh, the other day called Beyond the Peasts about the the life of ski patrollers uh, in La Clusa and I thought it was it was a brilliant film it's 12 minutes long which some people might think oh god I haven't got that much time I strongly recommend you know, committing 12 minutes of your time to watch this film. Uh, so uh, congratulations, Bethany. I thought it was great. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Um, it was filmed in La Clusa. Um, why Why did you pick La Clusa? Why La Clusa? Uh, so, well, both myself and uh, Jay, who also filmed, filmed the film with me, produced the film with me. Um, so Jay used to work out there um, quite a few years ago now. But we, uh, yeah, we just... We just feel like we know the place really well. We've got a bit of a soft spot for the resort. Um, it's really French. Um, in the fact, it's just very authentic still. It's all, it's very unspoiled. Um, a bit of a hidden gem, which I'm now telling everyone about. Well, I understand. <laughs> Excuse me. I understand what you mean by saying it's very French, but I don't know uh, how familiar you are with the ski podcast. But my co-presenter, Jim, actually lives in uh, La Clusa, which is another reason ah. why... It appealed to me. Oh, uh, cool! Probably uh, appeals to him as well. And so, was this kind of paid for by the resort, or uh, you know, how did it come about? No. So um, basically, we've spent a lot of time working in the Alps. Um, both both of us did ski seasons, and then um, our full time job um, is filmmaking, but obviously working for clients. Um, and a lot of the work we do is winter work for ski brands and things like this. So we've spent a lot of time filming and working in the mountains. Um, and we've always just had a bit of a, well, one, so impressed by what the Ski Patrol do yeah. um, and always had a real intrigue, you know, for what they really do and, like, the types of people that do that job and, and what motivates them. Um, and just felt, you know, after searching and reading about it online, there wasn't enough. Um, there wasn't enough out there and... Basically, just we've, we've wanted to make this story for a while. I had two weeks, like a window of opportunity at the beginning of January and just thought, you know what, let's try and make it happen. Let's go out there and um, and see what we can do. But I must say we were absolutely um, just taken aback, really, by how amazing they were and how warming and welcoming they were. Like, was it difficult to, I don't know, get permission to work with them at all? Um. It, not really, no. Surprisingly, I thought they were gonna. It was gonna be really hard. Um, but I emailed Lacluse Tourism um, and just explained what we wanted to do. Didn't hear back for like a week or so. So we'd kind of written the idea off slightly, right. thinking, oh, you know what, maybe, you know, maybe it is a bit much to ask for. Um, and then I got an email back saying, yeah, absolutely great. Um, here's uh, the ski 
like the director of the ski patrol's email and kind of go from there and talk to him about it and then yeah i've got chatting and great a date in the diary so yeah that's good excellent and as people will see when they watch the video uh that you know you were out there you know with the uh the ski patrol team you know in their in their early starts because they're starting kind of sort of uh six six uh before seven in the morning is that about right yeah well so day to day um generally if there's no um blasting of avalanches in the morning they they kind of start around half seven eight and they get first lift up so they're up probably eight fifteen. they get the, the lift up to the, their base um, but on those mornings when they do go up and um, blast blast the avalanche, they yeah they go up a lot earlier, so like six thirty seven when it's still dark. Yeah. At the moment, it's still dark. Yeah. Okay. So, so you so you mentioned the blasting, and obviously that is something that 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 stands out. I mean, anyone who's been to a ski resort after heavy snowfall will be aware of that sound that you get the following morning as the ski patrol team are out there blasting and making the uh, the piece uh, safe. And during yeah. the, uh, you know, the video, they refer on a number of occasions to the fact that it's a dangerous job. And this mm. is the the most dangerous part of the job. Uh, and you've got some footage of them actually lighting what I take to be like a stick of dynamite or something. Yeah. Chucking <laughs> it over the edge. Were you there for that or did they take the camera for that? Well, so we had all planned. It was all set, ready to go. We were going to meet. We met them in the morning. We were going to get, they get in their peace basher machines and go up to the top in the peace basher because obviously the lifts aren't open. Um, unfortunately, when we got there, the man that drove the peace basher uh, wouldn't let myself and Jay come up um, because it, there was quite a lot of high winds up the top. Right. That, that morning um and he said it was basically too dangerous for us to go <laughs> um so in the end we we gave them gopros right so that footage you see with him lighting the match he's got a gopro on his his chest yeah um and then um yeah we tried yeah. to get as much around that as we well, could well i can understand how you know they wouldn't let you one of the points of all the activity they're doing is to keep everything safe for normal people but you must have been delighted when they brought that gopro back and you discovered that they'd actually got the shot you wanted <laughs> yeah well luckily being all skiers they kind of they're used to using gopros right. to capture like their own okay. ski stuff so uh, okay. yeah they were good and so there's another shot in the uh, film where you see an avalanche coming down and it seems in that instance that maybe you're standing on one of the platforms on a lift or something or whoever's filming it is yes yeah so that shot um the top of one part of the resort called Latal, uh, they were stood at the peace hut, like on the kind of balcony, as it was, um, when that that came, and that was filmed on one of the ski patroller's phones. Right. So yeah, he caught that on his iPhone. <laughs> okay, that I mean that looked kind of scary. I don't know oh, what's that movie called, Force Majeure. Have you seen that movie at all? I haven't. No. Well, look no, up, look up Force Majeure, and other listeners uh, to the podcast can listen to it as well. But it's about an instance of where an avalanche is the dust cloud uh, is coming towards you and mm-hmm. you, it's not entirely clear whether it's going to envelop you or whether it's dangerous or not. But that's how it, how that particular bit uh, looks. Um, and I mean, they do talk about the danger a lot. And I also notice they talk about fear and yeah. it's almost in some respects, I mean, part of the reason they're doing the job is because they, they like to touch that, that element of fear. They, you know, it's, it's an integral part of the job, isn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, pretty much every member of the team we spoke to said, you know, they've all got that little bit of 
kind of want for fear to a certain extent, but more the adrenaline. Like they want to feel like they've, they're constantly being pushed out of their comfort zone, whether it's skiing, whether it's rescues, you know, blasting the avalanches. And every, pretty much everyone said their favourite part of the job is the blasting because, you know, it's it's really early morning. It's, you know, they're up there on their own. It's silent. You know, the mountain is like completely still. And then obviously that noise. Yeah. Um. But again, they're all... Ve- also, on the other hand, like really aware of the risks, they yeah. realise they have to take it seriously. Well, well. Yeah, yeah, it's a primal thing, I think, as well, isn't it? I mean, everyone likes yeah. blowing blowing things up. But I mean, so that's great. You know, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm going to put a link. Well, I'll embed, I guess, the uh, video into the show notes, but people can track it down. I'm sure if they Google uh, "Beyond the Peace" uh, by uh, Global Shots. And uh, and basically, thanks very much, Bethany. And if um, yeah, I'll put a link to your website in there as well. So uh, great stuff! Cool, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> nice to chat to you. Yeah, so it was. It was really, really good, Ian. And that was a really good interview. I enjoyed finding out more about that too. Um, what else do Global Shots do? They do more than just this, don't they? They're, they're quite. A yeah, big... as far as I can see, I looked at their kind of showreel stuff, and they do uh, videos for companies like Snow and Rock. You know, their uh, their video catalog, I guess it must be, and you know, very professional stuff. I mean, you can tell from that Beyond the Peace uh, uh, film that it's you know very high quality. But um, you know, hopefully, this will maybe get them some more business, get them all known in the in the ski area. I mean, it, to me, it's like a great advert for La Clusa. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I want to know is when is someone going to start doing a ski resort documentary about the Navette drivers? They are the unsung heroes <laughs> of ski resorts. Well, funnily enough, Do... they're going to be even more unsung. Uh, did you see that Val Friends have introduced a, um autonomous bus? You know, a, a basically driverless bus? No, I didn't see that. Right. They they did this last week. It's only running on a short route around uh, Val Terenz with nine stops. But it uh, has no drop. Well, it actually does have a driver because they stuck one in there anyway, just to be safe. He didn't actually drive it. He's just he's just there. So maybe, you know, the future of um, or a future documentary about Navette drivers will be pretty tedious because there won't be any in there. It's just going to be a video of a man sat there <laughs> yeah. on his phone. <laughs> Um, and this, but in Valteren, they're making um, a video about peace security as well. There's UK TV has commissioned ski and A and E in Valterens or VT. Yeah. Um, I mean, is this necessary? I've been trying to imagine it, and I mean, I've watched some of those Sex Sun and A and E things, and I think they're appalling. Um, is it going to be like that? Do you think? Well, I haven't watched any Sex Sun and A and E. It doesn't sound good. <laughs> got to, got to uh, admit it. But um, it's the know. sort of program Ian where there's a guy um, who has drunk too much and ends up in A and E, uh, and then has some bodily dis- um, not disability um, malfunction, like his legs doesn't work basically because they've drunk too much. So they they have a better idea. So they hire a moped to try and just show for themselves around more bars and then they end up backing A&E. It's that sort of programme. Okay, well, I'll watch out for that one. Don't. For this, don't. For this one, it sounds like something that's just going to reiterate to uh, to people their fears about um, about skiing anyway, like the jump did. You know, that people who like skiing already thought the jump was great because they see people skiing and people who didn't like skiing thought, oh, they see people getting injured. 
uh, and it just um, you know re-impressed what they thought about it already. And I think this program will probably be like that. You know, is basically portraying skiing as a something where you get injured. I don't know how many people will see it though. It's on a channel called W, which I have never heard of. Yeah, me neither. Um, hopefully, I mean, if I do watch it, I'm hoping it's better than that. Um, was it Chamonix or was it um, Zermatt where there was the helicopter rescue, mountain rescue um, program, I think? Zermatt, I think, yeah. And basically, whoever was in charge of filming it missed all the action and all you ever saw was a helicopter taking off into the mist and then re-landing with someone with a slightly damaged ankle and that's all the footage they ever caught. Right, OK. No, that doesn't sound like a good point. Advertising. What's this? Tell me. Uh, well, really, I just wanted to say to uh, to anyone who's listening uh, uh, out there, you know, Jim and I, we really enjoy doing this. Uh, but it is pretty much a labour of love. We're very grateful to uh, the Chill Factory for their uh, partnership with us. But, you know, there is room for if anyone else, you know, runs a ski business out there or even not a ski business, but wants to get a message across to thousands. Because there are literally thousands of people listening to this podcast uh, who are keen skiers then, you know, they should get in contact with us. I'm sure there must be something that we could do. So send you an email, jim at theskipodcast.com or me an email at ian at theskipodcast.com and, uh, you know, let's help you get your message across. That's all I wanted to say about it. You know, oh, help us keep um, the, uh, the the podcast uh, running and us cover our costs. Hey, and would you accept um, swapsies on this? So if like someone said... I'm not having any goat. <laughs> okay. You wouldn't take a goat for a shout out. No, no. Uh, it's a shame. I think it would be good. The ski podcast sponsored by Mountain Goat Hardware. I don't know. Right. Um, here's an interview that I've done with yeah. a guy from Ticket to Ride. They run a chalet company in Maribel. And Lindy wanted to talk to me about chalet regulations and controls in France. I am joined by Lindley, founder and director of Ticket to Ride. He has come to share the lowdown of what a tour op needs to do to keep the chalet wheels turning. Lindley, you are based in Maribel. Describe your operation to us. Hi, Jim. Yeah, so uh, we're a relatively small chalet operator. We've got five buildings, um, five chalets in Maribel. Some of them are sort of your eight to ten sleepers, but we've also got the lodge, um, which sleeps 22 guests. So that's the sort of breadth of our operation. So life is going on, costs are rising for chalet holidays, um, but people don't seem to want to pay any more for their chalet holidays. Um, there is competition from things like Airbnb and people making their own packages and stuff, and the rise of Club Med it would seem as well. Um, are chalet holidays under threat? Well, there's obviously quite a few things against the industry and what I thought it might be quite interesting to do to, um, to sort of explain to your listeners is just a bit more of an overview of actually what it takes to operate a chalet. So if you look at a small business like us, we take on five buildings, immediately we've got costs of just in rent alone of about £200,000. So that means we are that down before you've made a sale, before anything's happened. You then add in your staff costs on top of that, obviously that increases. So as far as chalet operators go, they are putting a, 
an awful lot on the line in order to be able to return and the hope and expectation that they're going to actually get some sales through the door and get customers through the door and obviously year on year you get your return customers and hopefully it works but the problem one of the things in the chalet industry and why i think it is quite fragile is that it's not based on large margins you know if you're running a festival you put all those costs up front if you fill out the festival you're expecting to make a 50 percent return um, you know, 50% margin, which obviously is what you're running a business. That's what it's about at the end of the day. Um, but in the shallow world, you know, people generally within the industry expect 20, 25% margin. So um, would you be better off just putting your money on a roulette table? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, then you can lose it all. This is a shallow holiday that we all know and expect. But you yourself, you need to provide and serve your staff and there's loads of regulations for you to comply with. Um, what are these hurdles that are in place? And I, I know they're growing. Um, that, what would you have to do to put this seamless operation into place? Yeah, so one of the things that's actually really cranked up um, in the past couple of seasons and um, it's certainly been referenced to a couple of times um, throughout your, your past episodes. Is, and I, I don't know how, how technically you've gone into it, but it's the, it's the right to second. And the way that basically the UK companies send staff overseas, they're seconding them overseas. Um, and for years, the Brits have done it in a, in, a, in a certain way, and the French haven't liked it they said that the brits are being non-compliant in the way that they're seconding um and in the last couple of years they have got so adamant on this point that they've actually threatened to ban secondment altogether so from that threat um obviously there's a huge pressure now within all uh, uk tour operators to become compliant with what the french system um, entails so this is pushing costs up. So a UK operator then, in addition to that, needs to demonstrate that the staff which are working on site are getting paid a minimum French wage and are working, um, the average working week in France is 35 hours. So basically, you, for, you know, for the sake of argument, it's a little bit more, but minimum wage in France is about 10 euros an hour. So if you're working 35 a week, you're suddenly on 350 euros a week. That's the starting point. Whereas in the past, an operator used to turn around and say, yeah, but we're adding your accommodation, transfers food, you knock it down to 100 euros, then that's kind of been the backbone of the industry. Now, um, with all this stuff that you have said, obviously there's probably a lot more paperwork now. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, um, and it's how the industry works. And a lot of it is, you know, it's for workers' rights. We've seen recently the fire in Courcheval, which you guys have talked about. and. You know, that has definitely hotted things up in the three valleys. How did that happen? It's, and it's probably down, I'm sure the work inspectors are probably getting it in the neck to say maybe that wasn't a legal staff housing. So get out there and find the other one. So, yeah, they, they're, I wouldn't say that they're, you know, that they're out to check that people are playing, uh, are doing, are, are being compliant, I suppose. You know, and I don't think they're not out to butcher the Brits or anything like that. They just want, they just got a set of rules and actually now they're fed up with operators not complying by them and they just want to make sure that everybody is. So are they on the increase? Are there more inspections now? Um, I, I actually can I don't know if there's any more. I think they've always happened, um, but I think there may be, maybe they're a bit stricter. 
So I can give you a bit of a rundown of the sort of things you need to be able to show on site if, if you're interested. So when someone comes in to inspect us, first thing they want to see is that you actually, you've got the right to have these staff over there. So you want to see a set of UK accounts showing that you've got a decent business in the UK. They want to show that you've got a proof that you've got UK staff in addition to these French staff. Um, and they want to see all the kind of, you know, official registration in the UK company. Fine. So that thing, they see that, they're fine with that. Secondly, they see that you've got a load of staff on the books. Before you send your staff out there, you need to um, file each staff member with HMRC and say that you're going to get po- they sent, post them out to Europe. That is a form that you fill in online, CA3822, something like that. And then in return, you receive, everybody then receives a certificate for which they can work within the EU. So this is something that you, you know, probably people weren't doing four or five years ago. So that you get every, every member of staff needs to have an A1 form. Um, in addition to that, when they've got their A1 form, you need to then file all of the staff details onto the French registration system, which is called SIPSI. In addition to their timesheets, you need to, um, people obviously get paid, so they get their payslips. You need to translate these payslips into French, which is also completely bizarre because you get a UK payslip which just shows up gross earnings, national insurance, PAYE, and then net at the end. You need to, operators now need to create a, a French payslip so it looks like a French one, so it shows how many hours they've worked, what their deductions were, all needs to be in French. You know, you're just looking, adding on hours of work, hours of administration work all over the shop um, with all of this. And, and then on top of that, one, another big thing as well is there's quite a strict requirement to the level of accommodation. Um, so every member of staff needs to have, you, you basically, you've got requirements over staff accommodation, but you don't have any requirements over guest accommodation. So, so the guests can sleep the guest, in the shed. The guests can sleep in the shed and the staff are living it up in the chalet. So basically the staff accommodation, and these are just general secondment rules as well. So you can imagine this secondment rules, these accommodation rules have been set up for someone to go and work in a, a French town, you know, not in the heart of the three valleys where some, some or Val d'Isère, where it's some of the most expensive real estate on the planet. But anyway, the staff accommodation needs to be six meters squared, personal space, in a 15 meter cubed room. If you've got two people in a room, they need to have no bunk beds and they need to have 80 centimeters between them. You need to have a window, um, you know, fair enough. I would never put staff in without a window, but you need to have a window and you need to have appropriate furniture. Excellent stuff. Well, lots to think about, uh, and I think people will, will take on board what it does take to run a shuttle. It's not quite as uh, easy as finding someone and then they turn up and suddenly um, they're cooking dinner and there's no issues at all. So, thanks very much, Lily, <laughs> for talking us through that. You're welcome. Thanks, Jim. And if you do, and if you do want to go on holiday to Maribel, do check them out. Um, what's the website? Ticketsridegroup.com. With happy staff. We're very happy staff, excellent welfare and great chalets and really good food and, yeah, everything you would want from a ski holiday. Okay, well, that was pretty interesting from, from Lindley. I'd be interested if there are other operators out there in, in any uh, country who are having kind of similar issues and how they're dealing with it and maybe we can talk about that in another, in another episode. Uh, yeah, and especially as the in what, literally a month from the time we're recording this, we may or may not be out of the European Union, which may affect you even further. 
Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, we've we've already had two episodes on Brexit. We all know it's happening. I think maybe you don't want to talk more about Brexit right now. No, I want to cover a review. You know, I do really enjoy reading those reviews where people say we're wonderful. I still like Max Martin's one about the uh, the one show for skiing and snowboarding. But um, how did that poll go? (laughs) But uh, I have noticed that someone gave us a one star review on um, on iTunes, and I'm really disappointed because they should have made a, a review at the same time rather than just going in there dropping on that one star review and not telling us why uh, they didn't like the show because how can we do anything about it if uh, if you don't tell us we want it to be i mean you can't please all the people all the time can you but um we have got 33 five star reviews so i would encourage you to uh, review us if you can on uh, on itunes or just send us an email or, or tweet us because they're all useful but I did want to mention something I noticed on uh, the forum Snowheads, which I'm sure a few of you know. Uh, this was by a chap called Dave of the Marmots, and he is referring to a conversation we had to we had in our last episode, which was uh, episode 30, I think. And he said, "Hmm, losing a bit of credibility as guys who know about skiing by slagging off neoprene boot covers." And then he says something like. Uh, I take it neither of you have ever skied somewhere seriously cold like Interior Canada or US. Have you ever skied uh, somewhere seriously cold like Interior Canada or US? Um, Finland. Finland. Okay, well, he says an extra 5 to 10 degrees of warmth in your boots can be the difference between frostbite and not. And, you know, that's a, that's an entirely fair point. And I have certainly never worn near being brute because But I think the point was... That the guy you saw wearing them wasn't he in La Clusa in January? Yeah, it was pretty warm. I mean, maybe um, there's no need for him from to... very, very cold feet. But there are uh, uh... Marmot Dave does. <laughs> no, this this guy who you saw. I'm saying Dave of the Marmots. Um, you know, uh, take your point. Um, if it was that cold, I'm not sure I would necessarily be skiing. But uh, neoprene boot covers. Um, Right place, right time. That's all we're saying. Or is Marmot Dave um, just the sort of man that will buy any old rubbish from any old store at the ski show um, and we've really offended him and he wanted to justify um, the rubbish neoprene boot cover purchase that he made? Well, that should get a response. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't listen anymore. He doesn't like us. He gave us a one-star review. It's all making sense. It could have been him, of course. Yeah, just connecting uh, connecting them all together. But give us your reviews anyway. Good or bad, we want to hear. Well, maybe. Thanks, Margaret. It's not just people reviewing us, is it, Ian? We review other things. And I think you've been reviewing something. Yeah, maybe we'll get sent some neoprene boot covers to review. Uh, but yeah, I'm I like sent, that. Uh, something from. Uh, I've got an old wetsuit we can cut up, make our own if you like. Ooh, now that would save money. Have you ever heard of Exeter? Have I ever heard of Exeter? No. <laughs> Exeter, they're smart wallets. Do you have a smart wallet? Um, no, I don't have a smart wallet. I don't have a wallet. Ah, you see, I don't have a wallet either. Um, I just put my card in the back of my phone in that. So. Right. Well, your disadvantage of that. Is that one of the things that the uh, the extra thing uh, can do, which is E K S T E R, but um, it can it can stop people swiping 
uh, your card. You know that uh, your swipe thing that you have on your card. Apparently, there is a lot of kind of theft going on where people um, have those machines and do wireless skimming. So this this particular wallet means you can stick your cards in uh, you know a solid container and it will stop that being possible. You can get one for your phone as well, and it's also trackable. So if you lose it, you can get six cards in there. You drop it. And one of the things I thought most interesting about it is basically there's no place to put money. And like the cash economy is disappearing these days. It is all about cards, isn't it? So your your new smart wallet is something that is trackable, only has cards in and can't be skimmed. That's what it is. Looks quite nice and it works. So if that was your thing, then you could get one and you can get one at 20% off because they gave us a discount code as well. Skipod hyphen extra. 20% 20% off. Uh, it's designed for people who tend to lose their belongings. So if you're really careless and you keep losing your cards, then this is the right thing for you. What do you think? Um, have you, are you going to get one of these, Ian? Well, I've got, I've got a sample one in front of me, actually. So okay. I'm not going not gonna to buy another one. I might... Um, I mean, like I say, I, I also just have my cards in my phone they do have uh, you know a version though of a phone cover uh, where you can sort them in there and obviously then your cards are, are kind of safe and trackable as well so maybe that is the upgrade i should be looking for the only reason i carry cash um, with me is because i resent having to pay um, a little bit extra to use my cards in some of those places do you know what i mean but that's just me <laughs> fair enough fair enough um Let's crack on. Hi, Ian. I've been telemarking for the first time. I was invited to try the age-old sport by a person I met online many years ago, and I've just met in person. Her name is Wendy. She is an Aussie uh, who lives in the Clouser, uh, and has adopted the mountains as her home. She used to hang out on the Natives Forum quite a lot. Do you remember Natives, Ian? Yeah, it rings a bell. Um, anyway, this is us having a chat halfway through my audio. Sorry, uh, my experience <laughs> of telemarking. Um, I've got my first question is, what is the point of telemarking? That's a really good question. Um, for me, it's, um, it's a way of improving my skiing further because once you've telemarked, when you get back on alpine skis, you notice a huge difference in, in your skill level. And I've been skiing already for many years, but telemarking just improves that out of sight. So I'm going to feel the benefit when I go back onto my normal skis? Definitely. Um, can you take me through what are meant to be the basics that I clearly haven't quite grasped yet? <laughs> right, so um, the hardest part of telemark skiing, if you can ski, is putting on the bindings. That's uh, it's the most challenging part because they're a bit fiddling. I did find that difficult. Yeah, they're a little bit yeah, fiddling. I'm not, I wouldn't agree that's the most difficult part. <laughs> <laughs> At least not moving when that happens. Um, after that, it's really just a matter of trying to, to alpine ski on telemarks, which is entirely possible on anything, including moguls. And once you've got your confidence, maybe we need to go and do that now. Maybe we need to head to a mogul field. Uh, once you've got your confidence with, um, <laughs> with alpine skiing on telemarks, then you can start to drop the heel and, uh, and really feel the turns that are much longer turns. It does take a couple of goes, but it really is just a matter of practice. Um, so... I know we're doing it recreationally, but there is a point to it as well, isn't there? Where would I actually use telemarking? (laughs) 
Um, it was the original type of skiing. So it was actually the type of binding that they used in Nordic countries before the heel was fastened. So I don't think you'd actually use it all that often. You, you can use it for, for going uphill as well, for rando, ski to rando, but they're different bindings normally. Um, and I don't know many people who actually do that because if you've ever done ski touring, you know that a lot of the, the snow is quite cruddy. And uh, being on telemarks in off-piece that's hit and miss is, is quite difficult because you just don't have the balance. You, if your front ski stops, you fall over the front of your skis. Now, in your honest opinion, we've, how am I doing? <laughs> you are actually doing really well. I'm very impressed. Good. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> the, um, it's interesting. So I'm out with two, two blokes, both telemarking, one for the first time, one for the second time. Um, it's important to keep your weight forward. Everyone wants to put their weight back because they feel like they're going to fall forward. But if you, if you have your legs far enough apart, your weight is evenly balanced. You're still in the middle then, so you're not leaning back. And your legs are doing the work for you. So um, that's probably the, the hardest part to get used to. But once you've got it, that's it. That's all you need to learn with telemarking. It's actually very simple. I find, the thing I'm struggling, I feel, with is making it flow. That comes with time. That's, it's, it's just practice. Now, we're about to get off the lift. We're about to go down a green run again. But can, is it easier to go on a steeper slope on it? I'm not, I'm no, not trying to egg myself on at all here. It's not easier. No. Um, you can go faster on this slope. That's, that might be easier, but we need to wait a little bit before we try telemarking on a steeper slope. Have you tried Have you tried telemarks, Ian? Yeah, I have only done it once. When I did my season in Zermatt, um, there was a race which was called the Triple Crown, and you were generally in teams of three, and you had one telemarker, one skier, and one snowboarder, and you did a relay. But um, I decided to do all three legs myself, so um, that was the only time I've been telemarking, actually, in a race. I suppose in that sort of situation, you, get, you can quite easily alpine on them, so you don't necessarily need to telemark. Or did uh, you yeah, there was, a kicker, there was a kicker in the middle of it as well. I was, I was young and foolish <laughs> and landed on my arse. Not something you try now. <laughs> yeah, no. No, although, you know, I mean, it's very elegant, isn't it, telemarking? Oh, it looks beautiful. I found it really, really tricky. Apparently, the idea is to keep 50% weight on both skis, so your downhill ski that is almost... Alpine, I think, and then your other one, which is reverse. But I, I couldn't get my leg back far enough to do a proper telemark. And I don't know if that was because I was scared, incompetent, or um, just massively inflexible, which yeah. I am. Um, um, this Wendy, um, Wendy took me. She was really encouraging and taught me through it. And it was a great experience. Um, she sent me a video of me doing nice. it. Um, which I can send and you, you can oh, upload yeah. that in for people to laugh yep. at my, my put me it on, doing that. Uh, put it on um, um, the Ski I Podcast said, Facebook and I'll uh, embed it into the show notes at uh, the Ski Podcast. I will do. And I even sent um, Snow Pro Dave, who I think is a level four telemark instructor, <laughs> um, a video of me doing it. Um, and he was very negatively positive in that sort of ski instructor way, which basically... Um, underlying the fact that I was really rubbish at it. But, you know, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, I'm going to try it again. Um, uh, it's a big challenge. And I don't think I'm going to be challenging um, Jasmine Taylor anytime soon. No. Uh, <laughs> highly unlikely, given that Jasmine Taylor is just like a non-stop um, success uh, merchant. She certainly, you know, it's. It, I think the tragedy is that telemarking isn't in uh, the Winter Olympics. As far as I know. It's going to be, though, isn't it? Mm, 
is it? Well, it certainly hasn't been yet. But Jasmine Taylor, who is only 25 years old, has already uh, won or been on the podium 29 times in World Cup uh, events, which is uh, which is you know, quite remarkable. Um, and so, but no, it's not. It, is it going to be? I'll have to, I'll have to Google that and put it in. You know, we should know our knowledge. This will be Dave of the Marmots will be saying, you're losing credibility as guys who know about skiing. You don't know if telemarketing is going to be in the next Olympics or not. I think Tracy, the telemarker um, on Snowheads, is the one that's really up in arms about our lack of telemark knowledge. But I'm pretty sure I've had this conversation with someone that um, it's going to be in the next Olympics. I could be wrong. Um, I'd Google it, but um, someone said that there was too much typing noise on our podcast, so I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Right <laughs> did now. they? Oh, well, um, you know, that, that was another negative yeah, review that you could have read out in our negative review uh, section. You know, I don't. All, all my knowledge is in uh, my head. I definitely don't search anything up while we uh, while we're talking. <laughs> yeah, I think you've just got a quieter <laughs> keyboard than me, Ian. Um, uh, Jasmine Taylor, that was a really good feature, actually, with her and yeah. Graham Bell on Ski yeah. Sunday, um, it was. Um, I was pretty pleased about it as well, Ian, because I found out that Graham Bell clearly sees me as a style icon and has got the same right, helmet as okay. me. Is it a Wedsy one? Uh, no, it's huh. a Bolo one. I bought it in a blind panic that I couldn't ski any longer without one because my children were asking to take Yeah, I know. That's difficult, isn't it? When you say to the kids, you have to wear a helmet, but you've got to wear one yourself, really, in those circumstances. Oh, here's the final part of my ski servicing guide with Simon from Wax Off. Hey, Simon. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Jim? Yeah, really good, thanks. Um, so I followed all your instructions from last time, uh, and I sent you some photos. Yeah. Um, what? I, well, I know what you thought. Um, first impressions, the first time I sent you some photos, um you came back with an instant response there's too much wax on them yeah yeah there was a lot on there you were uh, you used a lot of wax um or you just didn't really want to do any scraping which is understandable because it's a chore um but there was a lot of wax well, do you know out of everything i found I, I did find the, the scraping the most the hardest part out of everything um for some strange reason i thought you know i've seen someone do it it must be it's going to be quite straightforward and that first time I did it, I thought, well, that's probably everything off. Um, and then I sent a photo to you and you're like, no, there's there's like a candle left, basically, on, you, on, you, on each ski. <laughs> I'm not ski. sure it's quite that rude. <laughs> no, you weren't. You were a lot politer. Um, so I went back and I did it again. And yeah. I realized that, I you know, I hardly took anything off compared to what I took off the second time. So that was a, that was an important lesson I think I learned. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's really easy to put too much wax on the ski in the first place when you're dribbling it on. Um, it's really tempting to just get loads on there and think that, that you'll need tons and tons of it. Um, actually, you can be really quite frugal with the amount of wax you put on a ski. Um, and I really loved um, elastic bands. That was very, very satisfying, getting everything out of the way. And um, I, did, I did stupidly try and do at least one of my children's skis without putting elastic bands on. And I can tell you, you it's worth trying things. to realize that it's a terrible idea. OK, so um, the next question, Edwin, um, we went to yeah. buy stuff. The hardest thing was yeah. wax. There was so much yeah. choice. Um, I went for some eco-friendly stuff, which, um, you know, made me feel better about myself, if nothing else. Um, what shall I get? There was red, there was blue, there was black. I didn't know what to buy. So uh, first of all, discount anything with fluorine, fluoro compounds in it. Um 
that's a, a racing compound that involves lots of cleaning of your bases and it's not something that you want to get involved in. Um, next, you're going to start looking at the sort of the temperature ranges, really. Um, most of the companies, sort of a warm wax will be yellow, a medium wax is red, and a cold wax is blue. Most of them, like some very obviously. Um, anything that says additive on it, you can probably discount as well. Again, that's looking into the race spectrum. And if we're looking for something for just doing our skis every day, we're looking for what the big blocks are. Okay. Um, when I was doing this, obviously I listened to you, Simon, intensively. Um, and I even put you on my headphones while I was doing it, the beauty of podcasting, I suppose. Um, I obviously um, looked at a few videos just to make sure I was doing the right thing. Um, and uh, the video that you have is on your website, which is very helpful. Um but other people are using brushes. I didn't brush anything. You didn't tell me about brushing. So brushing will give you a better finish on the ski to allow it to run faster. Um, as you're asking me for the essentials, I don't think it's essential to brush your skis. Personally, I always brush my skis. Um, I use a horsehair brush. Um, it doesn't get any static onto the base. So it's not going to allow anything to cling onto it. And it, it takes a little bit more wax off the ski. So because the base of the ski isn't, completely smooth it actually has little bumps and ridges and a texture on there the brushing removes the wax from inside the texture there which helps it displace any water that it's running on uh, we're at risk of getting really nerdy and technical here this can go quite deep quite quickly magic okay well maybe i'll invest in some horsehair brushes and finally my last question in fact i'm just going to say two words and i want a full answer uh, about what i should do why it's happening and probably what i'm doing wrong Rusty rails. Rusty rails. Have you been leaving the skis in the back of the car again? Uh, not necessarily mine. I take a bit more care. But, um, yeah, definitely the children's after ski club lessons. Yeah. Um, so, first of all, make sure you've got some ski ties to keep them a bit separate. In the back of the van, that's going to help a little bit. Um, and then when you get them home, obviously, separate them and lean them against the wall so they can dry off. If you do have rust on your rails, though, it's not the end of the world. I use a gummy stone. Um which is kind of a, a little rubberized pad um, that's abrasive. Uh, and I use a separate one for taking the rust off edges um, before I use my files. Um, but if you can, at a pinch, just use a bit of sandpaper and just sand it off before you start using your files to get them sharp again. Uh, it's important to try and get that off and uh, not leave it to keep rusting because you'll start getting pitting in the edges otherwise. And then to get your ski sharp, you'll have to take more and more away from the edges and inevitably reduce the life of your ski. I feel like I just had an audible hand slap for that. <laughs> I'm sorry, it shouldn't have come across like that, but um, <laughs> I think yeah, I deserve it. You get rusty, it's bad. Yes, you're right. I mean, I come from the coast, I should know all this. Well, it's easy to forget, though, Brilliant. when you're having such fun in the snow. That's it, that is it indeed. Well, Sam, thank you very much. Um, it's been a good trilogy. Um, I. I am enjoying waxing skis and I'm looking for my second attempt. Um, don't worry, I won't bore you with endless snaps this time. But thank you very much for all your advice and all your help. You're more than welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed doing this, Ian. Um, I have done my ski servicing. I've got a lot better. Um, Simon has taught me an awful lot. Um, so thank you very much, Simon. If you're in Mel Morzine and you want your skis serviced, go and do it. Um, you saved me an awful lot of money, I think, Simon. So thank you very much. I found it quite useful as well, although or interesting, although not useful. Not only a pair, not only a pair of skis. <laughs> you don't have any skis. Skis, There's not a lot I can do, but it, you know, it's good to to know the theory, right? Good. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, before we go, Ian, um, 
there was a press release that you've just forwarded me um, from the Department of Investment and Trade. Um, and there's some interesting yeah. numbers about it. It says here that um, the, us as a British country, um, including economic migrants like myself, um, have, it's exporting 87% of its skis that are made in the UK are being trans, uh, exported to Australians who are doing cross-country skiing. That's what I've read. Along those lines, yeah. It's, um, it was a very, very strange press release. came from the Department for International Trade last week. And it says that um, the UK ski industry is exporting ski equipment all over the world, um, including, yeah, cross-country skiing. Um, 1.6 million worth of cross-country skiing we exported and down to the half a million, with lots of them going to Australia, as you say. And, you know, it says there were 83,000 pairs of skis exported abroad in 2018 to the UK. I can't see how that... Hey, do you know how many, um, if you stood those on to end to end, do you know how many um, uh, Mont Blancs have? Funnily enough, they mentioned that. You laid them out sure in a straight line, it was 52 times behind Mont Blanc. I don't really care about that. I don't think they exist. They surely don't exist. Who, who are the British manufacturers of genius this area? A company in Scotland, isn't it? That I've never heard of. Yeah, they mentioned Lonely Mountain Ski, one of the UK's companies. I mean, it's just made up. Um, but, uh, you know, if the government are uh, uh, saying it's from a press office statistician from, uh, say, uh, trade and investment media, but maybe it's lies, damn lies, and statistics. I also noticed that the investment minister, perhaps, and the Graham Stewart MP, um, really didn't like the way he decided to incorporate as people across the world prepare to hit the slopes and shred some powder. <laughs> I'm delighted with people. That's, that's the main thing people do when they go skiing at half turn. Yeah, we'll be using UK manufactured skis and snowboards. Yeah, interesting. I've asked them for some more details of those. Don't believe can possibly be true, but I'm willing to be corrected. It also seems like the most craziest reaction to um, Nissan announcing that their car park is leaving. My God, what else can we export? Skis, that's what we do. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, 83,000 pairs of skis. Email us, tweet us, tell us who the manufacturers are. Yeah, if you own some British-made skis and you're Australian, get touch. Well, I think that's pretty much the end of the show. Um, I've got something exciting coming up for the next podcast. Oh, again. yeah. Um, other Dave, um, not quite so good friend of the show from If You Ski. Oh, yeah. He went on an eight-day um, uh, exploration trip to the ski resorts of Japan. So I'm going to have a chat with him and find out what it's like to ski in Japan. Right. Which I'm quite excited about. Have you got anything lined up? Um... Well, I, I sadly am not going out to the Alps again between uh, now and, and our next podcast, and, uh, unless we uh, sneak another one in. So, um, nope. <laughs> Nothing lined up at all, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. We're always full of excellent content. Right, we are. Um, don't forget, you can get in touch with the show at the Ski Podcast on Twitter. 
Um, find us on Facebook um, and go to our website, theskipodcast.com. Make sure what you do is you get um, the podcast link and then send it to someone who you also know likes podcasts and likes skiing. Send the podcast to them to increase our listenership. Don't forget to review us. That's what Ian always says. That's catchphrase. Um, and remember, we are sponsored by the Chill Factory in Manchester, the Northwest Brothers Keeping Snowball Centre, and you can get a 10% discount the next hour by using the code Keyboard 10 at the checkout. Thank you very much for listening, Ian. Thanks as always to your insight and knowledge. Um, and next time, right, Bye.